Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the panel discussion today which is launching the Institute for Government and Bennett Institute review of the UK Constitution. My name is Michael Kenny uh, and I'm director of the Bennett Institute. Uh, my colleague Bronwyn Maddox from the Institute for Government uh, will we hope be joining us shortly. She's having a few technical problems at the moment. Just before we begin the discussion, let me just give you go over some of the housekeeping arrangements for the event. Uh, we'll be live tweeting from um, uh, IFG events using uh, the hashtag IFG Bennett Inst. Please do follow us and tweet along. Uh, please also send in your questions uh, as early as you like. And if you can give us your name, where you're viewing from, that's always very helpful to see. And you can post questions in the panel on the right of the screen. We will have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours. And um, let me just say one or two um, things about the review before I do introduce, move to introduce the panel. Um, this, I mean, for fairly obvious reasons, feels like a very timely moment to consider how well our constitutional order has withstood the political turbulence of recent years, uh, ongoing political turbulence. Um, whether this is a genuinely constitutional moment, as historians would put it, I think remains to be seen. But there is certainly a strong case, we feel, for looking again at some of the UK's governing institutions and constitutional relationships and asking what the priorities reform for reform should be in the near term. One of the distinctive features of this project is that it will be informed by a wider research endeavour, which will come from the Bennett Institute, but we will also be looking to commission work from other experts on some of the issues that we will be looking at. So in the next 18 months, you'll see different outputs uh, from this project, more conversations like this, and different kinds of public engagement, including, we hope, as things open up um, outside London, as we, we want to move around the country to, to talk to people about, to get their views on some of these issues. I have no doubt that the work we produce will not be the last word on the subjects that we will cover, but what we're really trying to do is to stimulate a richer, a more informed and maybe more balanced discussion on some of the different constitutional questions that have been posed by recent events and the different options that lie ahead of us. Today's panel, I'm sure, will be an excellent starting point for the conversation that we want to promote. So let me just move to introduce um, our panel to you. First of all, we have um, Dr. Halima Begum, who is Chief Executive of the Runnymede Trust, the United Kingdom's leading race, equality and civil rights think tank. Before taking up her post at Runnymede in a 20 year career with the Department for International Development, Lima held senior positions across aid and policy programs and research, representing the UK government on numerous long term international postings. We also have uh, Robert Buckland QC, an MP, who's a member of parliament for South Swindon, which is represented since 2010. He served as Secretary of State for Justice and was Lord Chancellor from 2019 to 21. And before that worked in government as the Minister of State for Prisons and a Solicitor General for England and Wales from 2014 to 19. He's also sat on the Justice Select Committee and the Joint Committee on Human Rights, the Common Standard Committee and the Commons Privileges Committee. 
We also have with us Professor Kieran Martin. Kieran is Professor of Practice and Management of Public Organisations at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. Before that, he was the founding chief executive of the National Cyber Security Centre, part of GCHQ. And before that, he worked in several roles at the Cabinet Office, one of which, which I guess is very pertinent to his comments today, was as director of the Constitution between 2011 and 14, where he oversaw the implementation of the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. And then finally, we have joining us uh, Baroness Smith of Basildon. Angela is a Labour peer and has served as shadow leader of the House of Lords since 2015. Before her introduction to the Lords, she represented the constituency of Basildon from 1997 to 2010. And during that time, she served as a whip as well as in ministerial roles at the Northern Ireland office, DCLG as it then was, and the Cabinet office. She's currently shadow spokesperson in the House of Lords for Northern Ireland, the Cabinet office, and constitutional and devolved issues. So welcome all. Thank you very much for joining us. Really delighted to have you spark this wider conversation. Uh, let me begin with you, Halima, if you'd like to share some opening thoughts. Thank you, Michael. And um, what, a, what a pleasure it is to um, be with this group and also the audience here today. Uh, to really dig into uh, quite important pertinent questions uh, that relate to the health of our democracy. So thank you very much for creating that space. Um, I'm Halima Begum, I work for the Runnymede Trust. Um, Runnymede Trust has an unusually healthy link to democracy in England and um, I hope that we can bring some of that spirit and value to this discussion today. Uh, people probably don't normally associate racial justice with Runnymede, but that's one of the reasons why we uh, are founded on those principles, so that racial justice can be seen as human rights. Um, I suppose um, just the opening remarks are really to set the context of civil society. So everybody's interested in the health of our democracy. Um, everybody's interested in questions of the checks and balances of power at the moment, and particularly during a pandemic where um, you know, even without intent, you could see normal mechanisms, mechanisms of accountability failing. I mean, that is what happens during emergencies. But of course, that places greater responsibility and scrutiny on our systems and our checks and balances to ensure that during emergencies, whether it's a humanitarian one or whether, in fact, it's um, something that's politically driven, a war, for example, that the due standards of democracy and checks and accountability are in place. So this is probably more timely occasion to be looking at our democracy and the constitution, whether it should be um, reformed, rejuvenated, codified or not. Um, for civil society, of course, you know, if you look at the social contract, civil society is often always that weakest bit, isn't it? Because government feels to be monolithic and powerful, market forces appear to be wealthy, and it's civil society that often relies more on the protection of rights, very formal rights from the constitutional setting. And for this reason, I think, for those of us who are constitutional experts here today, um, we are not the constitutional experts, we are civil society, and we want to understand what is the best form and shape and structure of the constitution that allows the voice and space of civil society, and in particular minority rights within civil society, to be upheld. Because if the rights of civil society and minorities is upheld in the constitution as effectively as it could be in the current status quo, we'd be happy, I think. But we know that's not the case. So our plea to constitutional experts is to 
give us, I suppose, the best form of a constitution that best guarantees the rights of civil society to function as part of its original aim in a social contract with government and with uh, markets and ourselves, and also allow a healthy democracy to, to be in place. And I can talk a little bit more about the protection of minorities a bit later, but that's the kind of perspective with which we come into this discussion today. Thank you very much, Alima. That's a really interesting um, opening set of thoughts. I'm sure we will come back and, and pick up some of those issues. Uh, let me move next to Angela, if I may. Thanks, Mike. And uh, it's going to be part of this team as well. I think we're going to learn as much of other people and from each other as this process goes on. So I think for all of us, it's a really sort of exciting uh, process. I want to pick up on something Halima said there, which I think was really important. She said about the public and engaging the public in the Constitution. And it's quite often that the Constitution has this enormous effect on people's lives. But if we were to go and randomly talk to 100 people in the high street and say we want to talk to you about the Constitution, they'd think we were um, the local sort of idiot and walk away from us very quickly. Um, they wouldn't want to engage in that discussion because it sounds so dull and boring. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have, of how we engage people in this constitutional discussion and what it's about. For me, it's about holding power to account. I suppose looking parliamentary wise uh, would be sort of my starting point being my involvement and how good and how effective are the mechanisms that we have in holding parliament to account. And I have to say, I think the picture is mixed. Um, I've been interested in Robert's um, discussion points on this as well, because um, a different size of the fence, I think we have very similar views and we've had discussions and engagement on this. My view is if you're going to hold the government to account, the government has to be a willing partner in wanting to be held to account. Um, and also the press and people outside Parliament have to understand what those roles are. They're part of the democratic process and far too often any challenge of government, and I think it's happened more in the last few years, um, is too often seen as unwelcome, unwarranted or unjustified. And some of the tax, I think, on the on parliamentarians in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords or the judiciary has been rather unpleasant and well over the top of what we'd expect, particularly, I think, during the Brexit debate, which brought a toxicity to our normal political engagement that we haven't seen for a long time and I hope will start to fade. Um, I'd also say what do we mean as well about holding power to account and holding the government to account. Um, too often I think in the media and perhaps an assumption in the press if MPs don't vote against their government it's seen as they're not doing anything about it and you know having been a member of parliament myself there's a lot of discussions that go on behind the scenes that are holding government to account. And perhaps if we said a bit more about those, the public would have a, a greater confidence in some of the political processes. Um, and the other thing I'd say is it's not just about the House of Lords. I think the only time um, I sort of see the House of Lords in the news sometimes is when the government has been uncomfortable or unhappy or cross with something we've done, which is normally just part of the normal parliamentary and political process. And we get attacked for that holding the government to account. So there's probably more I can say on that. If there's any questions as we move on. I think that's for an opening thing. I think the key for me about the Constitution is what are the mechanisms for holding power to account? How are they used? And how do people understand and engage with those? Or how do politicians and others and civil society engage and act on individuals' behalf on those? 
Thanks very much, Angela. Again, it's a really, um, a really sort of wide ranging and sort of fertile agenda. I think you set us there for further discussion. Um, let me move next to you, Robert, if I may. Well, well, thank you very much indeed. And it's great to be part of, uh, I think, a very what's going to be a very lively panel, because I think Angela's fair. It's she's right to say that there are things that I think we we agree on, but I'm just looking at the headline here that we can all see on our screen, reform, reject or reinvigorate. And the first question I always ask myself, I suppose, because I am a conservative uh, uh, fundamentally, is why reform? Uh, you know, I, I, I want to sort of gently but firmly challenge the groupthink that uh, might uh, arise from panels like this that says that everything is terrible and we need to change it all. I don't believe that. I really don't. I think um, Angela's mixed picture is probably uh, closest to the mark, but that does mean that there's a lot of things actually that work in our constitution that we shouldn't forget about. And when we talk about tension as a bad thing, actually, I think that's not fair. I think tension is actually often a very good thing. I think tension between different arms of the constitution uh, shows that they are alive and that they are uh, fulfilling their various roles. And even trenchant criticism isn't something that we should we should uh, worry about unduly. Where I think we should all worry is if um, there is a, a continual um, impugnment of motive uh, and a suggestion that somehow because somebody disagrees or one arm of the constitution is in conflict with the other, that somehow it's it's born out of a, an improper or an impure or inappropriate motive. It's that sort of, um, uh, I think, diet discourse that has entered public debate in recent years, which does fundamentally concern me. And therefore, I think what we should be looking at as we as we move forward with, with this review is is reinvigoration. I think that last word is something that excites me more than anything, because uh, I believe that we've got a lot of the tools there already. It's just that we don't necessarily use them as wisely as we should or, or use them at all. And that's to answer Halima's point about civil society and its involvement in what is a representative democracy. Uh, and, you know, the, the fundamental question here is, is representative democracy bust? You know, have we come to the end of the road about people like me representing uh, 75,000 adults and 25,000 children uh, in, in, a, in a corner of the kingdom? Or, or is there something more direct that we need? I mean, I suppose I would say this, wouldn't I, I'll, I'll Mandy Rice Davis, but I do think that representative democracy is a good thing and it needs to survive and it needs to thrive. Uh, otherwise, the country, I think, does become a rather a difficult, much more difficult place to uh, govern. Um, but, you know, at the heart of it all, uh, what I'm interested in is practical solutions. So I see a lot of criticism of government. Uh, and having, like Angela, been in government a fairly long time, I can tell you that not all of the assumptions made about government being a sort of... Uh, continuing sort of behemoth that wants to absorb more power are correct. Uh, government can be secretive, it can be defensive, it can be uh, obtuse at, uh, and often uh, it's its own worst enemy. But I fundamentally don't, I fundamentally don't believe uh, the theory that somehow suggests that all arms of government want to take more and more power all the time. Um, capacity, resources, sheer energy prevents that approach from actually being the real one. And therefore, what we, I think, need to stop doing is in this uh, sort of three-legged stool, always assume that government's the bad guy, 
the judiciary are the good guys and the legislature are the heroes. The truth is that all three have an equally important role to play. They've all got their manifest qualities, they've all got their flaws, but they're three parts of the same system. And I think uh, you know, rebalancing the debate in that way, and you know, I can say this now that I'm not in government, uh, rebalancing the debate in that way, I think is a very important part of the process that uh, we are under undergoing. And I do hope that as we uh, you know, develop our thoughts and ideas this afternoon and in future events, that um, we make sure that the, the diversity of thought that I think does exist on this panel is then fully reflected in the product that might emanate from our deliberations. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Robert. Um, let me move on then to conclude the panel to you, Kieran, and to talk particularly about the, the sort of territorial dimensions of the Constitution. Well, honoured to be here, daunted to go last after the three previous contributors and a lot to pick up on Helena's points about how power is exercised, Angela's points about how it's held to account and Robert's very challenging test of work out what's wrong with it and don't confuse tension with a problem and don't confuse a problem of politics with a constitutional crisis, I think are all good tests. So I will try and just say a few remarks about the other question which we haven't really touched on, I suppose, which is where power is exercised and again, not trying to grasp to mindful of Robert's test for structural and radical solutions, but just throw out some thoughts at the beginning. So starting with England, where we're not talking about national tensions, we are talking about essentially some of Halima's points about empowerment of civic society. We're talking about um, the issue of the moment about regional balances and, and, and levelling up and uh, so forth. And I just remember an anecdote from my own career about just shy of 10 years ago and when city deals were being done and all the regional deals um, under the uh, coalition and just some of the ways in which they were done I think represented some of the ambiguities. So I was sponsor for a region hundreds of miles from where I lived where I tried to get off to as often as I could uh, but I had no affinity with it and uh, did my best. You would then it was a negotiated settlement of earned autonomy where you know, well-meaning and hard-working local business leaders and elected representatives would submit plans and we would sit in Whitehall committees and very you know junior people and uh, people who with no with even less experience of the region than I would would make points about um, uh, and this is a real example about uh, the inadequacy of evidence presented by the local uh, community about transport links in uh, in Norfolk and Suffolk and therefore that this would be the settlement would be somewhat different. So if you're looking for things around how to examine uh, how the constitution and how the dissemination of power works in this country. I think there are things just about the functioning of government in that respect. We cannot make our mind up sometimes whether we actually want to. It's, it's to Robert's point about uh, is government trying to hoard power? Sometimes it just cannot make up its mind whether it's actually prepared, uh, whether it's actually prepared to let go or prepared to central and we end up in quite a messy way. And I think this applies even more to some of the territorial aspects which of course are existential for the 
country. There's a brilliant quote in the recent House of Lords report on the union um, from Professor Michael Keating, and just bear with me and I will read it. It says there are two interpretations of the devolution settlement. One's based on the traditional doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. Westminster's uh, lent, merely lent powers to the three devolved territories that can be reclaimed at any time. The other is that devolution represents a substantial constitutional change and requires a modification of our understanding of the constitution. And he says correctly, the former view is legally right and it's all consistently held uh, by the Supreme, upheld by the Supreme Court. But it's it's politically incomplete, but in a way that we haven't quite understood. And I think this goes back to different perceptions of the way we engineered the new constitutional settlement a generation ago in Scotland in particular, and of course, in the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland. It was a very emotional exercise about redesigning the way that the territory of the country was was run. In Whitehall, it was a technocratic exercise about which powers to keep, which powers to retain, how money would flow and so forth. And we failed to just try to have the discussion about how the state was being reconfigured. And now with a bunch of powers coming back from European level, we're doing the same thing again. We're just arguing, competing, contesting, rather than thinking through the nature of the society. So I'm not trying to prescribe things. I'm not defaulting to federalism or more powers, although I see the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland appears to have gone all, uh, out, 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 done a lot of us on Devo Max uh, today. Um, but that's a story for another day. But I do think this conversation about where uh, power is exercised is going to be a fascinating one for us to probe with um, a very complicated set of dynamics and potential answers. Thank you, Kieran. Um, again, really admirable, sort of interesting, challenging set of reflections, um, indeed, incorporating to today's event. So well done. Um, so um, I'm just going to bring in uh, Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, because she wasn't able to join us earlier, just to offer her welcome. And then I will turn to put a question to each of our panellists. Over to you, Bronwyn. Mike, thank you very much indeed and great to join you. I'm sorry for the technical glitches at the beginning, but I've been listening with with, with fascination and the appreciation um, of, of um, not just this conversation, but all the kind of conversations that we have begun in starting this project. We're really delighted to be doing it with, with the Bennett Institute. Both of us coming together at this point, feeling that the time is right to ask these questions. And what our panelists have just been talking about really um, goes right to the heart of the three different pillars we've we've focused our work around one of the power relationships uh, within the country and sometimes the very old foundations of those sometimes the very new ways in which those have been um, called into question the second one is is the territorial settlement that that that, that bit of jargon for the uh, how, do we, how do how do we get the relationships between the, the different parts of the country to work which which we've just been um, discussing Oh, I think we may have uh, we may have lost Bronwyn there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll move on. Paul Bronwyn's having some difficulties. Hopefully, we can we'll try and bring her back into the conversation before the end. Um, let me ask uh, you first, Halima, if I can come back to you. I mean, that, a couple of um, a couple of further references to the points you made about power, the role of civil society here. I I just wanted to follow up with um, just the question about, you know, I suppose from a citizen's eye perspective, um, how accessible, I mean, questions about accessibility of the political system have been 
posed for some while. But I'm particularly interested in the sort of constitutional dimension of that. I mean, do you think people have an understanding of how Britain's constitution works? Um, is there an agenda there in terms of either improved understanding or actually generating a sort of wider constitutional discussion that connects with those issues about accessibility you've been working on? Yeah, so if you were to ask the average member of the public, do you understand how the constitution works? Forget the public, I would struggle with that. You know, and I spend time with constitutional experts, such, such as uh, Baroness Biff here. But so I think I think it's it's quite a difficult one to ask of the public. What we need to be thinking about is how does the public understand how they hold decision makers to account? So if you ask the question, are you able to hold your local MP to account or your local councillor? Or in fact, do you feel that the media is representative of, of your interests? And is the BBC focusing on all your issues given the fact that you pay a, a license? I think you'll get a different answer. So the question around whether the public understands the constitution, I think goes to the heart of whether the public feels that they have any power, whether they hold any power. And at the moment, I think the public will struggle to say, yes, we do. And I don't just mean, Robert, because of short term issues around um, slight crisis of confidence in government. At other moments in history, there might be a crisis of government in, in other parts of the institution. But I think generally the public struggles to feel that they have that confidence in uh, holding decision makers to account. But more recently, I'll give you an example of how we, working in civil society, whether we feel confident or not, um, when we have a conversation about the constitution, people often jump to the House of Lords and there's that conversation around, well, is it is there a democratic deficit in there? Should it be elected? Well, if it's elected, when what's the role of the other house and so on? Um, but recently we have um, tried very hard uh, to uh, challenge and scrutinise various bills that are going through the Houses of Parliament. Now, those bills affect the rights of the public to protest, the rights of the public to um, uh, elect and vote their representatives. This is the election bill. This is the borders and nationalities bill. Three or four of those bills are going through uh, the Houses of Lords at the moment in January to 2022, they basically went through the Houses of Parliament um, uncontested. I mean, there was some contestation, but they went through. So essentially in civil society, for the very first time, we're basically so pleased that the House of Lords, even with its limited powers, is there providing a check and a balance on what we think are a raft of bills and measures that undermine and, and erode the civil space that we hold so dear in this country. And that's a very practical example of something that isn't working. And to your point, Robert, if we were to just ask the question in an abstract, well, should we reform the constitution or not? We don't ask the abstract question. What we are saying is, how did we get to in a place in 2022 when three or four bills that undermine human rights in this country, and particularly, by the way, the rights of minorities, they're going through uncontested, and we would like to see more challenge from the Houses of Laws. But ultimately, it becomes really difficult for charities because we're then defending a place where we shouldn't be defending. So charities become politicized. They shouldn't be politicized. Charities represent the public interest. But if the Houses of Laws and the Supreme Courts are upholding more of those rights and that civil society space, what happens to the role of charities? It's a really live debate and issue for us. Um, so the Borders and Nationality Bill, for example, that went through the Houses of Parliament, it's coming up for its final reading with the Houses of Lords. Um, a lot of civil society have said, but we can't do anything about it because actually even with the best amendments from the House 
of Lords, Houses of Lords, it will go through with royal assent. So what does civil society then do? Well, the answer was, you know, ask Liberty and Amnesty, go organise some public protests outside Downing Street. But of course, the policing bill itself, which is the other of the bills that undermine civil society rights, is the one that stops a lot of that protest going ahead. So I think there's something fundamentally coming unstuck at the moment, and it would get unstuck, doesn't matter which government is in power. And it's that balance that we want to see in place, because having that balance in place ensures that civil society and charities can actually work on charitable issues and, and that the businesses can focus on their part and government is continuously held to account. It does feel as though there's a lot of power concentrated in one part of that relationship at the moment. And that's what we're, we're finding really difficult. Thanks, Anima. I know, Robert, you want to come back. I can see you shaking your head. Can I just right. go to... Sorry. Okay, I will come to you in a minute. Um, uh, can I just go to Angela next, though? Um, uh, Halima mentioned the Lords a couple of times, and obviously, um, that's that's you know, you, you, you're a member of the Lords, and you mentioned that in terms of sort of achieving the right balance between the different branches um, of government. I wanted to just, just specifically ask you, Angela, about the debate about the House of Lords, which and its potential reform, which kind of rumbles on. Um, what what is your feeling about how the Lords is performing? Um, and the kind of legitimacy question, I suppose, that hangs over it. Well, there's there's two sides to that. I think what I found very interesting about Halima's comments was she was thinking this was the first time that the House of Lords had these three three huge bills. I have to say, it's quite a challenge. We're sitting regularly until midnight. We're starting at 11 o'clock in the morning. We're doing much longer hours. Um, actually than the House of Commons. Um, so, but it's not the first time. We, that, that's our role to scrutinise bills and we're doing nothing different now to what we've done in the past. And um, what we have found over a number of years that increasingly um, campaigning groups from across the political spectrum will come to the House of Lords with ideas and suggestions and thoughts. And I think partly we have more time for this, whereas as Robert know, um, there's increasingly less time in the House of Commons to go into the detail of bills, whereas House of Lords, we don't have that guillotine. And so you carry on debating, um, which brings benefits, I think disadvantages as well. So it means that everything's aired, but sometimes you don't need everything to be aired on every single amendment you're discussing. Um, and when you've been here midnight, several nights on a row, it can get a bit uh, exhausted when you started early. So there's but the law doesn't do anything different. What has been different, I think, is like we saw on the police bill that you mentioned, where the House of the Government brought things into the House of Lords on a bill that hadn't even been discussed in the House of Commons at the last moment. And one of the reasons there were so many defeats for the government on that was partly because of the content. People didn't like the content of it, but a lot of peers were very uncomfortable with the idea that the government could bypass the common stages and put something in late in the House of Lords. The Lords themselves felt that was unconstitutional and perhaps as, as significant as the wins were the number of Conservative peers who just didn't turn up. They didn't want to be there to vote for those measures. So there's nothing particularly different in that. And we do go into things in more detail. Unlike the MPs, we haven't got constituencies and we're not doing all the constituency work as well. Our focus is on legislation. Um, I mentioned my opening comments of saying that scrutiny isn't just for the House of Lords, because I think there's a, a greater role the House of Commons could play. And one of the things I think, and I'm interested in your comments on this, Robert, if you agree with me or not on this, that too often the government confuses um, any tension. I agree with you. I think tension is good in political debate and in legislation. I think that's a, a good thing. But government confuses 
um, if the House of Lords rejects something or suggests an amendment, they see that as a as a row between the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and it isn't. It's challenging the government and offering a suggestion to the House of Lords. Um, and the government likes to confuse the House of Commons with government because it has a majority and thinks whatever it can do, it should be able to get through the House of Commons. And that makes it very difficult for MPs who, if they um, argue against even on a non-binding opposition day motion, they threaten MPs with losing the government whip, as some have done, and that makes it very hard. So that's why I made the point at the beginning, there are MPs um, that will speak um, behind the scenes to ministers to try and change things. So at the moment, though, that isn't welcomed by government. So a lot of the scrutiny role falls on the House of Lords. But I think I have to say the work pressure on the Lords in the next few months coming to the end of session is great. In terms of legitimacy, I always wonder how much legitimacy a government wants a second chamber to have. And I think one of the I, I'm greatly in favour of House of Lords of reform. I'm not so enthusiastic about an elected House of Lords. Um, one of the things I think if there was to be an elected House of Lords, you have to look at the different relationship between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And when people talk about changing the House of Lords, reforming the House of Lords, moving the House of Lords to York or Glasgow, as we've seen this week, they sort of think of it in isolation as a vacuum. And the whole value of a second chamber is its relationship with the first chamber, the primary chamber. And at the moment, if the House of Lords passes, um, we say 14 defeats on the police bill, but I think about eight of those were taking things out that can't go back to the Commons have been discussed. Only about four or five of those um, are issues that the House of Commons will now have to look at again and discuss. When the House of Lords sends those kinds of amendments to the House of Commons, the government isn't worried about what the House of Lords votes. What the government's worried about is if it can hold on to its own MPs in the House of Commons. It's given the House of Commons a chance to think again. So I always say we're the, it's the chamber of the second thought, the second chance, because the only role we have in legislation is making suggestions to the House of Commons. Look at this again. Do you want to make a change to it? Now, I think that is quite a valuable role for a second chamber because no government gets first, everything right first time, every time. Um, and so and most of the amendments we suggest, I have to say, are either brought forward by government or accepted by government. But there's those few that are very politically contentious um, and that's where the attention arises. So in terms of reform, there's lots of things I would like to see. I'd like to see a much smaller House of Lords. I'd like to see reform of how the appointments are made to the House of Lords. I'd like to see reform of some of our procedures. But I think on elections, you can't look at that in isolation for the House of Lords. And as for the Michael Goh suggestion of moving one chamber of parliament to another city, I think that ignores completely the interaction between the House of Lords and the House of Commons and government departments and the whole political um, arrangements and legislative arrangements we have. So is that slightly a convoluted answer? But it is uh, one of the things about, um, I think, our constitution is quite dynamic. And it does evolve and change over time, but it's dependent on each part playing its role properly. And this is the thing, point for you, Halima, where if the government doesn't want to listen or to have that debate with a big majority, it can just say, no, I'm not interested. 
if it hasn't got a big majority or it's got some say discontent on its end side which we see at the moment then amendments from the House of Lords become a lot more interesting because the government has to make the case rather than just assume it's got the support of all its MPs and that's where I think we are at the moment so sorry if that's a bit long uh, Mike for having no, some of that... the issues. Thanks Angela um, I want to move uh... Briefly, if I can, to to you, Robert, and to Kieran, because I have some lots yeah. of questions are pouring in. Do you, Robert, rather than me put a different question to you, do you just want to pick yeah. up the yeah. points that Lima and Angela have made? I do. Um, I, I strongly agree with Angela's points about the Lords. I think you look at function first, and the function of the revising chambers is huge. The great thing, the, the great difference now is for the first time in our history, we have a Conservative government with a big majority, but a Conservative government that does not have a majority in the Lords. That's never happened before. And that's probably one of the reasons why we've got this tension. Actually, you know, that un underlines the, the obvious problem we're having here about understandably ending up having a sort of um, po surrogate policy debate about issues of process. To answer Halima's point, you know, having been a councillor, having been an MP for a long time, talking to residents every week, what they want is a process that they can respect, even if the outcome isn't the one that they wanted at the start. They want to know that the process is a fair one, whether it's a court process, whether it's a planning application, whether it's a council decision, whether it's a parliamentary debate. And here's the thing, with the greatest of respect, not everything this Conservative government is doing is, are things that this panel are going to agree with. Well, the thing is that we were elected to do this stuff. And that's why in the House of Commons, we've got the authority to ask the House of Commons to vote through things that we want to do because we're the government. I take uh, Angela's point about the government must must be careful not to conflate itself with the Commons. But that did start with the programme motion back in the noughties when the previous Labour government started to use the programme motion and change standing orders in a way that we'd never seen before in the House of Commons. And of course, hey presto, the coalition carried it on and here we are 20 years down the line with the programme motion being the norm. It wasn't always the way. Now, you know, and I'm a backbencher, I can particularly see the force of perhaps moving away from habitual programme motions and going back to a situation where if the government wanted to curtail debate, bring a motion of its own to guillotine or, or, to, or to, to end uh, a debate. Um, so, so the fundamental question for me, you know, just standing back and being a member of the public again, is even if I didn't vote for this government, even if I don't agree with the police bill, is the process a fair one? And yes, I accept that I think there are tensions there. And the point that Angela made about the provisions in the police bill not having brought be before the Commons is something that I understand and absolutely uh, respect. I mean, however, the system has worked, hasn't it? Because the government hasn't been able to ram that through. And it's going to have to think again. And if it wants to bring these provisions forward, it'll have to do so in a separate bill. And there's another example, I suppose, of tension actually doing um, the constitution and the, the, the wider in public interest a service. Um, I think I think just just to round this conversation off, uh, I, I do think that, you know, as we develop our deliberations, we've really got to try and move away from the here and now and remember that uh, whilst we mustn't obsess about process for its own sake, if we are going to make a difference in terms of constitutional reinvigoration, the test for me is whether my residents in South Swindon are saying, well, do you know, Actually, we do feel now that this is a process that we can respect, that we don't have to understand every warp and woof of it, uh, but we uh, respect and understand those who are involved, by the voted for them or not. 
but that they are part of something that is inherently fair and open. And I think you know, working towards though that sort of practical outcome is what we should focus on. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm struck by your opening um, observation there, Robert, about the the often a de constitutional debate sort of bleeds into proxy uh, policy debate, and of course that is a feature of the British system, isn't it? Really, some would argue, compared to other systems. So that's perhaps something also for us to reflect on. Um, Kieran, can I just turn to you to finish this round of questions? Um, just going back to your remarks, um, there are a number of different issues that you mentioned or there and also several others you've written about. If you were to sort of give us a sense of your priorities for reform in the territorial relationship space, I mean, where would you start? What are the what, what do you think are the most important issues to look at under a reforming heading? Well, I think there's a theme in this conversation about to what extent are we debating abstractions that no one cares about versus they ultimately they get through to things that really matter to people and i do think i'm going to just stick to the territorial aspects of the constitution because i do think that is somewhere in between you know outside of england in various different ways in scotland in wales in northern ireland um, and in very different ways in all three places there is to some extent a conversation that is interesting some people about the nature of how they are governed in a way that we haven't uh, really talked about. You can overdo it, but you know it's not a coincidence that constitutional politics have dominated Scotland um, for quite some time uh, now that they're talked about a bit more in Wales and we have um, the difficult and unique uh, circumstances of Northern Ireland. And here I think there is you know, a, an interesting to pick up on uh, Robert's last point, you know, there is an interesting point there about the, f um, the fairness and legitimacy of the process. So if you do have the first very large conservative majority for decades and um, therefore a lot of people, you know, in, in any democracy will be getting things that they do not want. Um, there is a different dynamic beyond England, uh, um, particularly in Scotland at the moment, um, uh, about what that mandate means and how that is received. It's not the straightforward sense of, well, my side lost, I'm going to have to put up with things that I don't like for a while, but uh, the process is legitimate. You know, it is different in the national identity. It cannot, there's a constitutional dimension to it, there's a process dimension, and it's fashionable in some quarters to blame it on devolution itself. I actually think that you cannot divorce it from two facts. One is that Scotland and England have been making, and Wales and England have been making very diff different political choices for some decades now, for most of the time, not all of the time, but for most of the time. Um, and that is different in the context of strong uh, national um, identities. And then secondly, the single big, I was a civil servant, so I was never, you know, I was stalking corridors in Whitehall rather than the palaces of Westminster. But in terms of political masters and people uh, and, and bosses and people you dealt with, the single biggest change in the from 2000 to 2020, the 20 years I was there, was the disappearance of uh, of senior Scottish uh, MPs from the seats of power uh, from 2015. You know, it was a fundamental change in the Westminster dynamic. You always had, even in the coalition, you always had people sitting in Scottish constituencies uh, talking about how things would play in that part. And that just dis that has disappeared in the last few parliaments uh, because even in 2017, when the SNP did relatively badly, uh, it still had a comfortable overall majority of, of Scottish MPs and you didn't have front benches on both sides with that strong uh, regionally uh, dispersed um, uh, uh, interest. So you're, um, I've avoided your question, Mike. 
I actually think um, because and the reason I've avoided it is that I'm trying to I'm trying to frame it. Um, we have a constitution, including law reinforced by the Supreme Court, which can operate on simple majoritarianism, and that majority can be generated within England um, because of the balance of population. But that's not politically how the modern British constitution is legislatively framed or it's supposed to be politically designed. And so how do you reconcile, if you like, the sort of legal and political constitutions in ways that, because I think it is more challenging in the in, in the territorial constitution outside England to meet the Robert Buckland test of how do people accept legitimacy and fairness when they don't win? And there's a there's a question there's a question for you. So it's not a priority, but it's a question. A lot of research and so forth would be interesting, um, and discussions uh, might be of interest to answer. And I do think that uh, in the places we're talking about, that goes beyond the mere sort of constitutional abstraction of interested, you know, nerds like me. Always good to answer a question with a question. So thank you, Kieran. Um, so I, I think it's time. We haven't got a lot of time left. Um, as, and there are so many different threads to this conversation and issues we 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 could um, discuss at greater length. But I hope we're giving you a sort of flavour of some of the issues and thinking that we're starting to do. Um, I'm going to pick up a couple of questions from the chat, and then I'm not going to put them to all four of you. I'm going to sort of direct them to different people so that we can get through a few of them. Um, first one I'm going to pick up, interesting one from I think it's Tom Brake from Unlock Democracy which is uh, a very pertinent question is how might we build cross-party consensus around constitutional reform in the current situation so i'm going to put that i think to the two politicians on the panel and then i'll come to helima and kieran with a different question uh, angela do you want to start with that one i suppose you start with not and nobody looking for where the party political advantage is but looking at what works and Robert said something at the beginning that I had on my notes as well. I didn't was basically rather than assuming there's a problem or assuming what you know what people want, interrogate the issue and actually get properly down to what works in our system and what doesn't work, what has public acceptance and legitimacy and what doesn't, um, and look at the function of what of those things. And I think if you do that, and also I suspect that constitutionally. We have tended to do things in baby steps in this country rather than an all out massive change um, and sort of have a staged process, see how that's sort of what to do next. And that might be a way of getting um, sort of cross party, cross community buy in. Um, I actually agree with Tom, I think that's in many ways that's a better way to proceed if it is possible. And what worries me is if we have a system with a big government majority, it becomes a winner takes all. And if you've got a big majority, you can do what you want. And I think on any grounds, and I'm not going to make, say this government's done that, Labour government did that, Tories do that, I'm not getting into that, I'm looking at the principle of it. And I think there is a danger on that. So um, if you can get it, I would have thought it would be sort of piecemeal, look at where there's agreement, but don't use that as an excuse to look for the lowest common denominator, but look for changes that actually matter and make a difference and the points made time and time again to people's lives. Just as I added to that, we often talk about devolution, everybody wants devolution. I think the point he made at the beginning, people want to know where decisions are made that affect their lives. And if there's an institution that's 100 miles from you, 
away or 10 miles, it makes no difference. It's the same people who aren't listening to you. So it's how you feed in that engagement as well. Uh, Robert, obviously you've, you've sort of directed yeah. us away from a kind of um, reformist approach, as it were, in all yeah. matters here. But do you think there's a case for more constructive constitutional engagement across the parties? I do. And I think Angela's point about, you know, the function is, is really what, what I'm interested in. So let's take uh, the role of select committees in the Commons, for example. Uh, you know, I think they've uh, accrued more influence. I think the election of members has been good. Uh, do I think that more needs to be done? Yes, I do. Most particularly, for example, with pre-legislative scrutiny and post-legislative scrutiny, for example. And I'm sure that, that, that there is, in that one practical uh, scenario, uh, an opportunity for some cross-party work to be done to, to improve those processes and to frankly give MPs more to do. Because um, if the programme motion is here to stay, uh, if it is not going to be changed, then we need to make sure that MPs are working as hard as they can uh, on the committee corridor in a way that really makes a difference. Why is it important? Well, it's important because I believe it makes uh, it improves the way policies are made. It improves the way legislation is made. And that, of course, has a long term benefit for all of us, members of the public, uh, because the one thing I think all of us know on this call that poor policy and incoherent policy leads to bad legislation, which leads to uncertainty and legal challenge and leads to consequences down the line, whether financial, moral, emotional, whatever it might be. And therefore, there is, I think, a long term gain uh, to be had in that area. We're not going to get let's 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 you know before I finish accept the fact we're probably not going to get the fullest of consensus. And I, I'm Tom, I know who was a member of the coalition government and a, a long serving member of parliament and he and I would no doubt disagree strongly about PR. Uh, I think we've got to accept there are going to be some areas where we're just not going to agree. But let's focus on that common ground and get on with some practical change. I, I'm all for that. OK, so we've got a number of questions that, that are putting the case for more radical all-round all change. So I want to air th uh, that idea as well to, to you, Halima and Kieran. Um, I mean, Halima, just we've got one or two people asking about do we need a constitutional convention? Is there should there, is there time to have a, a sort of citizen's voice, some sort of deliberation on some of the sort of key constitutional principles of the UK? Do you think there's any scope for that in the current moment? Um, there's always there's always a difficulty because of the current situation to to suggest um, a solution that then doesn't feel right, say, 20 years on. So I'm always reluctant to respond too quickly to those issues. But 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 I think the, the, the wider question is around over the years. I mean, even if we were conservatives and if we were to say if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as Edmund Burke would. Every hundred years, I think we still need to check the relevance of society and our institutions and I think we're probably at that point um, Robert where I think we, if we've got a model now for example where you've got a bigger majority uh, winner takes all there's something ringing in my ears at the moment about winner takes all Angela that that feels like an ABBA song but anyway I'm going to put that aside um, you know that if you if you accept for example that we've gone for a fair process but we do have a simple majority system that allows the government of the day to pass bills that feel fair 
But but civil society and for minorities, there are certain bills that are going through that feel unfair, unrepresentative. And I'll give you an example. The Nationalities and Borders Bill leaves uh, people who come from a minority background particularly vulnerable. The uh, Elections Bill that requires us to possibly show uh, voter ID registration leaves and has a negative impact on minorities. Now, I wonder whether we need to be looking at a minimum guarantee of rights, for example, for minorities. So even if you follow through a, a, a fair, legitimate process, there can be minorities that get left behind in many ways. And we feel this. So is there, is there a role, for example, to guarantee minimum human rights? Now, that's relevant because, as you know, the consultation on the Human Rights Act is underway at the moment. And we know that that is going to potentially have a negative impact on the rights of black and minority ethnic communities. So that, that becomes problematic for us. So the question around whether we should have citizens process and deliberation models, that I don't have a clear answer for because the models I've seen work have been in other countries where they have a different governance model. Where I do think there's a particular challenge is a model that seems fair is going through the process of what elected uh, MPs are supposed to do. You get to a situation where there's been legitimate scrutiny at the Houses of Lords, as, as they should be, but still minorities are left feeling like, oh my God, this bill potentially leaves me uh, without my own rights intact. So what's There's something wrong there. And the problem with that then is the functionality of the constitution comes apart. So what you then have is the High Court and the Supreme Court having to make a call on a lot of cases that impact on, on minority groups. That shouldn't be the case. You don't actually want to be in a country where you're constantly relying on the High Court or the Supreme Court to wade in to guarantee the rights of minorities. If you're constantly finding yourself in a situation where the High Court is involved, you know that balance isn't working. What's the best way to give civil society and citizens that right to challenge? I, I don't know. I'm not a constitutional expert, but certainly coming from civil society, it, it's not working. What's the best way to make it work? Thank you, Halima. Uh, and to you, Kieran, um, the final question. Um, we've got a, a number of questions sort of talking about devolution and also some saying is a more federal UK really the only answer to the to the sort of tensions within the union but i want to because i think i know what you think about that i'm going to put a slightly different question to you about devolution itself which is um unfortunately it's from someone who's anonymous so i can't reveal who, who exactly it is but it's a very good question it says devolution facilitated uk territorial units going in different directions and therefore has undermined the legitimacy of the british state whether or not one thinks this is a good thing or a bad thing it is clearly the case says this questioner question to you is on what basis has devolution not undermined the legitimacy of the UK? In other words, is, is devolution the problem? Well, I don't think it is. I think the UK historically over centuries chose a model which retained both the distinctive national identities in a way that other European countries that were made up historically of things that approximated independent states did not. And you know, uh, France, for example, you know, promoting a pretty ruthlessly single sort of uh, French uh, um, uh, version, the UK kept the multinational model. And so then when you get political divergence, as you have done in the last half century, arguably even longer, you know, political structures will come under um, um, will, will, will um, come under strain if they're very sing if they're very unitary and majoritarian. So, you know, whilst the counterfactual can never 
never, like any counterfactual, you can never work out what exactly would have happened if after, um, uh, if after the 80s and 90s, you know, the, the then Labour government had decided to forego devolution, um, uh, would everything have been all right? You will never know that, but I do think um, there's a very strong uh, case for saying that um, you know, the, the British state had to um, had to adapt. Um, so I don't think um, devolution is the problem. I do think that um, there are things about the way in which it has emerged. I think that both sort of in terms of the administrative culture and Whitehall at the time, it was very technocratic. It didn't, it failed to appreciate just the significance of this change to the British constitution, I think. Um, and part of that um, sort of devolved quite literally into very initially asymmetric things on tax and spend. So the devolved administrations could spend, but not really tax, um, they could tax a bit. Um, and that very much skewed the way the, the politics uh, worked. And that was very much, you know, a sort of, and I was there at the time, um, that was very much a sort of treasury reflex that after spending two decades, finally sorting out the national finances, you know, whose barking mad idea was it to let all the people spend money and how much can we curtail it? And you know, whilst that was an understandable bureaucratic um, reflex at the time, it was it, it sort of meant that there was a failure of statecraft, there was a failure in London to reimagine the, 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 the British state. And I think we risk doing that now because we are, re, uh, whether we like it or not, we are redesigning the state now post uh, departure from the EU. And I don't think we're having a sensible, I don't even think the government's having a sensible conversation with itself because some Sometimes it's doing things that are quite what you might say moderate and de devolutionary and consensual in respect of how this works with the, the devolved authorities. Sometimes it's doing things that are seen as quite aggressive and there doesn't seem to be much consistency. So I think there is now um, a chance to actually take stock. I agree that a separatist administration in Edinburgh is not um, going to be seen as a natural a partner and so forth. But I don't think you can avoid now having the sort of strategic rethink and reset about what sort of um, dynamics in this governance structure you want to have. Great, thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of our allotted time. As you can tell, we could have gone on and on. Um, I want to just thank all the people who put questions into the discussion. I know one or two of you are frustrated that your particular issue didn't, didn't get raised, but there is plenty of time in the course of this review, hopefully for us to do work on a, on a number of different areas and subjects. Please do keep an eye out for the, the work that we'll do in the review and please do look at the paper published today by colleagues at the Institute for Government, the sort of framing question paper for some of the um, discussions and work that we will be having. Thank you finally to our esteemed panel. You've done a great job there in giving us a flavour of some of the issues and some of the, the debates and disagreements around those issues that we'll be covering. Thank you, everyone.